Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We're going to kick the show off tonight with some guests, very special guests, all the way from Spring, Texas. Is that right? That's correct. Let me introduce the, the matriarch of the girl. Actually, the matriarch is sitting, Alice, <laughs> but standing is uh, Andrea, and she has... I'm going to let Andrea, you introduce your children, your son and your two daughters. We have Baron, he's 11 years old, Allison, 13, and Josie, who is 16. And these are three of six. Well, eight, actually, but they're three the last of eight. three. Yeah. And, and Alice is your mother-in-law, mother yes. and you're married to Terry. From Texas. Big, uh, shout out to Terry. Terry, shout out, who's all the way in Texas, too. He's still back there. You've come out to Utah to do a few things. But uh, you came to campus on Sunday. We had an opportunity to talk. You're aware of things that happened with the ministry. You know uh, Warren and Breaking Bread and things. So tell us about how you got here, why you're here. Because we don't have very many people who like us from Spring, Texas. <laughs> well, it all started in January right after um, the new year. We came back from meeting lunch on a Saturday and I just happened to have my tablet out and I caught a shred. That, and you, I remember these words so clearly, you believe the Bible to be true and the Book of Mormon false, or the Book of Mormon true and the Bible false. And that hit me like a load of bricks because that was something that I had dared not even speak. And you had the courage to, to voice those words. And I listened to about two hours of those shreds off of YouTube and they've made a huge difference for our family. And I showed it to my husband and I said, you gotta listen to this. And we started from episode one and went through every one of the episodes that we could get to play. And they taught us so much. You spoke the Mormon lingo right. that translated into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, um, and helped us understand what that was because the, the words don't mean the same thing. Mm. And there's no doubt in my mind if you have a relationship or not, you know that you know it. And before I always asked myself, did I have a relationship with God? And I never could answer that for myself, correct? You know, and felt like I had it. Mm -hmm. So... We just praise God for Heart of the Matter. It's taught us so much, and we're so thankful. And yes, we are stalkers because everybody you've had on your show, we felt like they're our family. <laughs> so anyway, we're just very thankful to be here. Oh, well, we're you. grateful to have you. Baron. anything you'd like to add to what your mom had to say? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, how are the girls these days? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. All right, and Allison, anything you'd like to say? Well, we've gone from church to church, and I feel like God has helped us, because if we just jumped right into Christianity right after the Mormon church, we, we probably would have gone just not believing in God anymore. So it's, so it's all helped us to find true Christianity, Christianity and just come to find people who know the real Bible, and it's just been amazing. Praise so. God. Very eloquent young lady, a very good spokeswoman. And now your sister, your older sister Josie, tell us anything you want to say, any, or if you don't. No, nope, you're nope. the shy one. Yeah. I don't blame you. I don't. And Alice, anything you'd like to add? That was heaven saying, "Speak, Alice." <laughs> I'm just grateful to be here tonight, and everybody that I've met, I really like. Uh, you make us feel warm and comfortable and cozy. And that's that's amazing in itself, because you don't find that in the Mormon church. Oh. So that's pretty much it. Thanks, Alice, so much. 
Listen, join with me. We're going to open with prayer. And I said earlier to them, while I'm praying, you guys walk off. But, you know, why don't I pray with them and you guys join me in prayer uh, before we uh, send them off and then we'll come back and get on with the show. Lord, we just love you and so grateful for the work you do in individual lives and families, these children, uh, the things you're doing in Terry and Andrea's life and, and here with uh, Mom Alice. We just pray that you will watch over this family. You will let them be shining lights there in Texas to the community, that you will open doors for all of them to reach out and touch their friends. Um, like Allison said, with the true message of Jesus and, and the true message that comes from your word. And uh, we're just so blessed to run into wonderful folks who have a heart for you. And uh, we've been blessed to meet this family, protect them on the road and all they're involved in. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, you guys. All right. If you haven't read uh, Get Right to It, Knife to a Gunfight, I just want to tell you I think you should. Uh, it's not motivational. It's not going to save you from sin or get you into heaven. But it may serve to help you free, free you from the bonds of religious allegiance. Derek recently uh, informed me that it's official. Uh, for every book we give away and mail for free, we sell one. Uh, for, excuse me, for every 15 books that we give away and mail, we sell one. So I'm not promoting Knife as a way to make money. Uh, I'm promoting it because I think it will help people understand the purpose and place of the New Testament and therefore arm them against the abuses that can come when people try to use the Bible and control and condemn others through it. Knife to a Gunfight's available at hotm.tv. Last week, I read some emails between a pastor in Wyoming and who asked a ministry that comes out of here of this state to not attend an LDS temple dedication. And uh, the street preachers of this ministry have decided they're still going to attend and uh, do what he believes he should do. Even though the pastors from that Star Valley, Wyoming church and other pastors are against it. And so I asked, you know, you guys in the audience, what do you think should happen? And I left it at that. We received uh, this email that says from Dallas. I just want to express my feelings regarding this zealous individual who doesn't seem to be on the same page with the Christian community who are faithfully developing a dialogue with the Mormons. It seems the overall objective is being ignored. Does this individual want to bring souls to Christ or just make a lot of offensive noise? I don't understand why he ignores the fact that things are better done in a Christ-like way, long-suffering and peaceful instead of offending people I admit that the institution is an abomination, but the people are God's children and need to be led and fed rather than mocked and offended. Use the Mormon strategy of warm them, then warn warn them. I appreciate your support, Sean. Uh, allow a little backstory before I tell you how I see things. The ministry that goes and street preaches at temple dedications, and they go and they do that at Manti and the like. Uh, I have never really personally endorsed or believed to be very effective. Uh, I've made no bones about it from the onset of our ministry on TV here. Uh, having been LDS, I'm convinced that what happens is actually detrimental to missional efforts. Add in the fact that I am personally 
Uh, I have some dip personal difficulty with the people behind this specific ministry. I know them personally. So I would love to, to take a side against them uh, too. However, that being said, I was once on the receiving end of being a ministry that was coming to this state and the pastors in this state got together and they said, uh, we don't want you to come. In fact, the supporting church that was sending me out here, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, received letters from a couple of the pastors, one of them saying, we don't need his kind of help. So who gets to decide? Do pastors or a group of pastors who are from the area that happen to be in the community involved, do they have the power? Can another ministry claim the right to do what they believe they're supposed to do in spite of what the pastors ask? Uh, really, the bottom line question is, who has the authority? That's the question. Who has the authority to make this decision? Years ago, we decided to hold a ministry event and Derek obtained a hotel room where he was able to get us a deal. And um, it was down the street from a larger church in the, in the valley. And uh, it so happened that the night we were gonna have this event for our ministry, that church was going to have an event at their church. And um, the pastor got wind of us having our event on the same night down the street from his church. And I mean, things got ugly. He actually accused us of planning our event to make his event not as attractive. I'm not kidding. And he even demanded that we uh, postpone our event to another day, even though we had sent our invitations out to all of our partners and said, come and join us for this particular night. Well, we kind of resisted, but it got even more kind of ugly. And uh, who has the authority? The pastor in his church and what he's doing, which was a larger church than our ministry, or, uh, or the ministry involved? The answer is really quite simple, if you think about it. And it, it sounds trite, but the authority is God. And by his Holy Spirit, he has the authority. And this authority, I believe, on earth is always truly manifested through selflessness. Whether it's, uh, which, which is a characteristic of agape love. So we made the decision uh, to cancel our event. We didn't have to. That pastor had no right to impose his will over ours. But we did it because selfless acts are supposed to be the Christian way. Now, understand, I did not want to do that. I wanted to put up banners outside and with arrows pointing to where we were having our thing, say, come to ours, come to ours and forget that thing down the street. I mean, it really ticked me off. But that's what's demanded. That's the difference. It's not what you feel like doing. I didn't, wasn't filled with love so that I could, you know, oh, let's just let him have it. I mean, my will was, I, this guy is really an idiot, but we decided, uh, and Derek helped me make that decision, you know, hey, all right, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just do this. So I would love in this situation to say that this ministry should not go out and protest against the LDS temple and they should pull out, uh, but that's not up to me. And I would love to say the pastors have no right to request that another ministry stay home. Uh, but again, that's not my call. The answer to the situation is really that old cliche that kind of got popular about 10 or 15 years ago. What would Jesus do? I mean, what would he do if he was... if if two of his apostles were each having a party one night 
and they were fighting of who, you know, what would he do? What would he tell them? And he'd say, you know, let those who love God and love man die to self and, and let the other one have the party. I mean, it's really quite simple. So in the end, we're all responsible for what we do. I mean, bottom line, that's really clear in Romans 14. We are personally responsible for our choices before God. And uh, as Christians, I mean. So, um, you know, take it for what it's worth. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. In the Mormon Christian debate, even within the realms of Christianity and the debates that thrive therein, there is often a push to determine exactly who Jesus is, who he was. I mean, uh, some like to demand that very theological terms are used to describe his makeup. It's the hypostatic union of God. Uh, he is 100% man. He is 100% God. That must be the way he is described, right? So some tone the rhetoric down, much to the behest of the Jesus police who want to make sure that everybody describes him exactly as they think he should be described. But of late, I've noticed something really fascinating in scripture. Uh, the way Peter and Paul introduced Jesus to groups of people who do not know him. All right. So in Acts chapter two, Peter is standing before a group of 3000 Jews and he can say anything. He walked with Jesus for three years. He knew Jesus really, really well. Uh, and how does he describe Jesus? Well, this is what he says in Acts 22. Uh, Acts, 20, Acts 2, verse 22. He says, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So Peter had an opportunity to introduce Jesus in any way. He was God in the flesh. He was the hypostatic union. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, whom God, a man, whom God, that's how he constantly talked. Let's go on. He goes and he visits a man named Cornelius. And when he goes to visit Cornelius, this is what he says about Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he refers to him in his home place of living with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who, speaking of Jesus, went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him, Jesus of Nazareth. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they hanged and slew on a tree. Him, God, raised up the third day and showed him openly. In both of these settings, Peter could describe Jesus in any way he wants to these two groups. And the things he said is Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God, by which God did many signs and miracles and wonders, whom God anointed, whom God raised up. They always mention his, God raising him up as a resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. Always mention the resurrection. So these are the points made to the Jews at Pentecost and to Cornelius. So when Paul, he goes to Athens, 
Yeah, this is the home of great philosophical intellectuals. He goes to a place called Mars Hill to preach to these uh, Greeks who did not know Jesus. This is what he says. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. By that man. Whom he has ordained. Whom God has ordained. We have Peter saying he, God appointed that man, Jesus of Nazareth. We have Paul saying he has ordained that man. Whereof he has given assurance unto all men that he has raised him. That God has raised him, the man Jesus from the dead. Again, Paul introducing Jesus to a group of new hearers preaches a few similar points to Peter. God appointed, God ordained, God raised him from the dead, that man. These points are central to the message of Jesus Christ, that he was a man, Paul says, born of a woman, born under the law, a Nazarene, approved of God, a man whom God did miracles by, whom God appointed and ordained, and included in every one of these messages is the crowning fact that God raised him from the dead. No other man had been raised from the dead. All the debates about his deity and his pre-earth life as the word or as God or as the son of God are really side issues when it comes to what Jesus did and means to us as human beings. Now, I openly admit scripture calls him the word was with God and the word was God. No problem. But that is a side issue really when it comes to this earth. Because we're down here walking around and a man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one whom God did all these things through. And then he raised him from the dead. And that's our hope. That he went through the things we went through. He gave his life for the things we can't. And then he rose from the dead because God ordained it. This is what Peter and Paul emphasized about his nature. They didn't emphasize his godly nature. They said it was God who did this through him. It was God who appointed him. It was God who raised him. But they never say he was God who then uh, got up on the, he, They never say that. They don't emphasize that because it's not that important when it comes to what he did for us here on earth. Listen, there are a lot of people who look to Jesus in the terms described by Peter and Paul. They say... In my faith, Jesus was uh, someone who God was with, who God, he did miracles, God did miracles by him, and God raised him from the dead. Now, that doesn't hit the hypostatic union of Christ stuff square on the head, but it is certainly the message that Peter and Paul uh, seem to give in the way they introduced him. So I think there's something to think about that when it comes to our missional efforts to reach other people. I'm not talking about the deep theologies we talk about once you've been in the body and things like that and what he was relative to all of scripture. But I'm saying when it comes down to it, to reach people, that's the message they gave. And with that, let's go to our board of direction. I hope you'll excuse a little insight into how my life works, but it kind of dovetails into a lot of things we've said. We've got emails about my tattoos. We've got emails about different things. So I'm just going to cover something that's mind-blowing to me. And it, it may be boring to you, so I'll give you a chance to sleep before we get to the, the, the full message. But we've talked about Christian art and Christian artists here on the show. And we've talked about the spirit working through believers subjectively versus objective religion imposed upon you, that you have that individual personal relationship. I want to share with you in living color how all these concepts 
kind of came together for me this past week. And how I'm going to describe it is exactly how it is. And in fact, my family can attest to this is exactly how it is uh, or was. In 2010, I think, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, for her 16th birthday, Mary and I, with some help from Mary's mom, got our youngest daughter Delaney uh, an uh, orange 1971 Volkswagen Bug. And she drove it all through high school and she drove it through college. And two and a half or three years ago, the brakes failed on it and she hit another car and it smashed in the, the, the front hood and it bent the fender. And so that car was kind of put in storage. We never had the, the funds to fix it. Well, three weeks ago, while I was driving to go work in the morning, I looked to the side of the road and there was this metal frame, big metal frame set to the side of the road. And sitting on that frame was a big red hood for, a, I think it was a Mazda. And I passed it every day for about a week. And every time I saw it, I just thought, why is, why is that thing there? And then one day I just thought, it's going to be taken by somebody who's going to sell it for, for whatever. Uh, so I went and got our truck and I came and I picked it up and I brought it back to uh, campus. And I decided when I looked at that thing that I was going to cut an, a, an X in it, a very symbolic figure to me, a big X. And, uh, and so here it is. This is the X that I cut out of it. So, uh, and that's going to work its way uh, up on this backdrop someday in the future for another reason. But this is the metal. You can see the back of it from that car. And it was very symbolic to me, this X. Uh, several years ago, why is the X symbolic? Well, let me explain. And you know this from another show, but I'll try to be quick. Several years ago, maybe in 2008, uh, I started imagining how do we teach concepts in scripture uh, to people who can't read or who can understand form. So I started to think about forms and I decided that out of nowhere, I just decided that the best form to start to explain God was that, a V. The reason is, is because the universe feeds into, he is in charge of the whole universe and I thought that symbol is the best way to describe God, if I was going to use a symbol or a form. And it means victory. It's emblematic of God being in control of the universe and all funneling down into him, him reaching up to it. And it, it's God pointing down to man. Uh, and, and it's also the symbol of life. It's that uh, cuneiform. It's the sign of femininity from which all life comes. So since we were made in God's image, I said, well, if we're made in God's image, and this is my symbol for God, then the reverse has to be true for man. And so that gave me the X in my mind. Okay, so we have an X. And here we have the earth and we have man. And it says, well, you know, he's over all the earth. That's what God said. God says, I'm over all the universe, but I'm going to make you in my image and I'm going to let you be over all uh, the land, right? So to me, that, that made a good representation of the relationship before the fall between God, that's like the finger pointing down, and man, like he was reaching, pointing his finger up, touching right there in the middle. There was, in the beginning, it all begins with an X. That's how I would say it. And that's why I have that tattooed on my arm. That's, that's an X that I've tattooed 
There on my arm. Derek's going to show you if you can see it. Okay? So, and then also when I look back over the course of my life, X has had a really important uh, significance to me personally. And I won't go into all the details. It's one of my favorite bands in high school was a band named X out of Los Angeles. And I went to their first show. And, and I'm part of the X generation, the last year of what an X generation kid is. And X is the unknown factor in math. And it goes on and on and on. So I contemplated uh, X as a symbol to explain God and men. And then I realized, you know, this, this relationship ended. And so what happened was sin, that's the lightning bolt, sin came in by Adam and that destroyed that connection there right at the, at the cross. And what happened was man decided that he is God. So man faced the same direction as God did. And there was, a, there was a division between them. There was no more uh, unity between Adam and God because Adam had separated it. And Adam and everybody who followed thereafter is born into a world and thinks, I'm God. I'm in charge of everything. You got that? Also, in addition to this, at the time of separation, I suggested that this form changes. And that man who was once complete here, all fully one now is divided into body, soul, and spirit. Why would I say that? Because I would suggest that this is when disease and mental illness and inner conflict and decision-making and all that came into play. And so our bodies and our souls and our spirits are at war with each other because of the fall. Well, when man flipped over, decided to become his own God, and he broke up into these three parts, I suggest that God also said, okay, I'm now I'm not just God in the Old Testament. I'm now Father and Son whom I'll send and Holy Spirit that I'll send. Okay? So we have the same thing. Man has, because of the fall, turned into a trifurcated soul and is spiritually dead. And God then sent his only beloved Son. But what happens is, if God just came down and superimposed himself over this, we would have religion. We would have, just the, we would have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit superimposing himself over our body, soul, and spirit. And that's, that's called religion. That, that won't work. And so what happens is God remains in the same place he has always been in. And he looks like this. Man has to flip. Man has to go back to this position where he says, I'll accept the responsibility over, over the earth that you've given me, but I will have everything point back up to you and stop pretending that I am God on earth. And so what happens is man flips and it looks like this. And he flips over. And so man becomes body, soul, and spirit at rebirth. And God remains Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when these two things come together, we have what's called integration. You can't read it. Integration. And this is also called rebirth. And what it looks like is this. Okay? So we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we have man's body, soul, and spirit. And that is called rebirth. And that is how men come back and unify with God by and through his son, through the Holy Spirit.
You got all that? So last week, Mary came into some uh, funds because we sold our house in Huntington Beach and we had the money to fix the Volkswagen. So she went down with Delaney and she picked up the parts from the broken down Volkswagen. I had already cut this out, the X, and now I had another hood. Two hoods in a week and a half. And I looked at this hood and I said, you gotta be kidding me. And so I got, I got this hood, this is the Volkswagen hood, and I looked at it and I'm like, holy shiitake, look at this thing. This is Jesus on the, on the cross. This is his head, and this is, this is like a modern example of Jesus on the cross with the wrath or the love of God, the Spirit pouring down upon him when he's on, on it on our behalf. And so I cut it out in the shape of a towel. This is the Greek T, capital T, because they say that's what, he was, that's what he died on was a towel. Not on the cross that I have on my hand, but not with the one with the piece here, but like this. And I cut that out. And so I, I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking, that is really great. That, that this is emblematic of Christ on the cross. And I started thinking about it. And then right here at this circle, I started thinking, that's Jesus' head. And then I thought, what would go there on the, on the VW? And then I thought, oh, their emblem does. And I shot up. And I gasped. Why? Because the emblem, which I came up with in 2009... Is right there. It's the V and it's the W. It's the exact same emblem. That, and, and you might think, you're insane, McCraney. And I am insane. But I believe that God works through some this way. If you're one who's like that, this type of stuff doesn't fit in Sunday school. This type of stuff doesn't fit in the, in the you know, come on, let's go and, and do this for the church. It fits in your relationship to how he works with you and sees you. And so I'm sharing it with people who see the world differently and who see relationship with God outside of all the ways we think it's supposed to be. Do you know who, who ordered Frederick Porsche to create the Volkswagen? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler commissioned Porsche to design the people's wagon, the people's wagon. So even in something that originated from something so absolutely diabolical in a historical sense and with all the wrong things, he still, he still reigns. He's still there and he's still reaching out to reveal himself. You can think I'm crazy. I don't care. This is how he works in me. And if he works in you, I want to give you hope. You're not crazy. You can be a Christian artist. You can think outside the box. You can produce works that are different than other people won't understand. You can be ostracized by friends who are in the faith because they don't get it. But it doesn't matter. You know. We know. And on we go. All right. Let's talk about atonement, and we'll go to the phones. In our book, Where Mormonism Meets Biblical Christianity Face-to-Face, -face, we give an illustration to help people understand the differences between the LDS view of atonement and the Christian view. Christians might suggest 
that all of us are living in a small village that is ruled by a benevolent and caring king. And this beautiful king has provided a special servant to this village. And this servant takes care of every need that the people of the village have, every need. He brings them milk and food and he heals them with powers that the king has given to him. And he makes all things right and good. And everything the servant does is for free. It's because the benevolent king loves us and the servant loves the benevolent king and the people that are his. And so the servant comes and he, by virtue of this king's love, he enables everything to happen for the people in there. And everything happens as the king has promised. Now the villagers are broken up into two groups. These groups represent the LDS view and the standard biblical Christian view. One party believes that all they need to do is trust in the king's promise that he would send his servant. That's it. I just trust he will appear, and he always does. That was it. They experience him constantly, this servant showing up and doing all he says he would. But the other group doesn't think believing in the king and his promises are enough. And so they decide they will send the king gifts. And they'll send him baskets of fruit and they'll dress really nicely and they'll post pictures of the king all over their house. And they'll do this because they're trying to keep the king's favor in, in harmony with, his, with them. And they want to make sure he doesn't neglect them because they want to be worthy to receive the king's servant. Interestingly, the servant comes to all the homes of the village. And he comes most abundantly to those who do nothing but believe and trusted. And, but he's there for everybody. And he's there serving everybody. No matter if somebody offered up fruit baskets to the king or if, they, or if they wore peasant's clothes, it's irrelevant to him. He loves the king. He's the servant. And he's there to give his life. But the other villagers who think that the faith in the servant isn't enough, they're burdened. Because every week they think... What are we going to give the king now to make him happy? How can I continue to impress him? And this burden causes them to feel overwhelmed and to get irritated when other people aren't following in, or in line of how to serve the king. And they might even judge others who, uh, in the village who live by faith alone. This is the difference between the LDS view of atonement and the Christian view of Atonement. Christians believe in the servant holy as promised by the king. They trust the king's written promises that the servant is there not because they deserve it, uh, but because the king loves them and has promised them that he would send his servant, his son. The eldest believe that the servant will only appear and do work for them if they do their part. Remember that. If they throw in their efforts then they merit the king's and the servant's services. Listen to what LDS Apostle James Faust said on Atonement in October uh, of 2001, November, Insign article. The Atonement, Our Greatest Hope. Quote, our salvation depends on believing and accepting the atonement. Such acceptance requires a continual effort to understand it more fully. The atonement advances our moral course of learning by making it possible for our natures to become perfect. All of us have sinned and need to repent to fully pay our part of the debt. When we sincerely repent, the Savior's magnificent atonement 
pays the rest of the debt. Now, it's important to know to the, that to the LDS, what Jesus did with his life and through his death, death does two things. First, it gives everybody, no matter who you are, what you've done, how you live, in your beliefs, the free gift of a resurrected body. That is one thing that the atonement gives to LDS believers. Free, resurrected body. That is his grace, his graceful gift to you. You have not earned it or merited it. You're just going to get it. However, there is a caveat that you have earned it and merited it because you chose God's plan in the pre-existence and because that you will get a body. So there is still a merit even there. It's not a free gift. Where Adam introduced physical death to the world, Jesus overcame it for everybody. And this is the gift. That's part A, resurrection. So when Mormons say that people are saved by grace, in reality, theologically, that is really what they're talking about. Um, that they're saved from eternal death of a physical body and they will get another one. This immortality is absolutely free. Part B of the LDS atonement is that Jesus' death and resurrection gives people the opportunity. Now, that phrase, the opportunity, is probably every 50th line in the LDS church, you'll hear the opportunity. I'm grateful for the opportunity, for the opportunity. Everything is, is opportunity to become exalted or in Christian parlance, just to live with God after this life. The actuality of this comes by their work, their righteousness, their obedience, and their receiving all the required LDS ordinances, you see. So part B is hugely different from part A and very different from the Christian view, which is both part A and part B together in one. LDS apostle uh, Russell Nelson said in the Insign article uh, dated February 2003, thanks to the atonement, the gift of immortality is unconditional. That's the resurrected body. The greater gift of eternal life, however, is conditional. You see? So to a Christian, if you have faith, God grants you both a resurrected body and you, you, everyone gets it anyway in Christianity, a resurrected body, one to damnation and one to eternal life. But in Christianity, everybody by faith is granted eternal life, not to the Latter-day Saints. And this is a very distinguishing demarcation line between what the LDS beliefs are on soteriology and atonement and Christian views on the same. I want to pause in the middle of this quote. He says, thanks to the atonement, the gift of immortality is unconditional. The greater gift of life eternal, however, is conditional. You notice that he uses the term gift. The greater gift of eternal life is conditional. And I want you to know that a gift is either a gift and it comes without any conditions or it is earned. And therefore, if it's earned, it's not a gift. It has to be one or the other. You do not receive a gift conditionally. You have earned it. You've worked for it. You've done something to receive it. When people say you will get a free gift by just attending and spending three hours listening to the sales pitch, that's not a free gift. And actually, free gifts are redundancy. Okay? So just remember that as I read this. So he says, thanks to the atonement, the gift of immortality is unconditional. The greater gift of eternal life, however, is conditional. In order to qualify... One must deny oneself ungodliness and honor the ordinances and covenants of the temple. That's huge. 
Now we've just stepped. Now that religion steps in and says, listen, you're going to get a resurrected body. Everybody gets that. But if you want to get the greater gift of eternal life, and you want to live with God after this life, and you want to be exalted, etc., etc., you must deny yourself of all ungodliness. That's impossible. You can't deny yourself of ungodliness. It's, it's going to be in your flesh. And honor the ordinances and covenants of the temple, which also are impossible for a Latter-day Saint to keep. Impossible for a Latter-day Saint to keep those covenants they make in the LDS temple. They can say they keep them. They can try and keep them. They can go through the system of how they've set it up to keep them, but they cannot keep them. Okay. In fact, in that temple, Satan says to him, I'm going to tell you something right now in the camera. He looks at the audience who's there and he says, I'm going to tell you something right now. If you don't live up to every single one of the covenants that you make in the temple this day, you'll be in my power. Guess what? Every single person in that temple cannot live up to the covenants that are made in the temple that day. So Satan is telling them from the Mormon perspective, you're in my power. That's how it works. It's extremely sinister, though the people within it often don't know. They don't think through this stuff. They don't know these facts. They're just there because it's a good old church. And I have friends that go to this thing and I have a good support system or I think I've got to obey. I've got to earn it for God. All this stuff. You know, but it's really quite diabolical when you get down to it. Well-respected apostle James Talmud said, the sectarian dogma of justification by faith alone has exercised an influence for evil. So what he does is he goes absolutely contrary to what Paul said. And he says, listen, justification by faith alone has created evil in this world. Uh, and we know that perhaps one of the most diabolical statements when it comes to atonement is the, is the third article of faith in the LDS church, which says, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by, not Jesus, not faith, by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. I'm going to wrap this up by reading one passage. Actually, it's several verses from Romans chapter three. And I want you to hear what Paul says relative to everything these apostles from the LDS church have said. Ready? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from the law, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all, who believe, who believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart 
from the deeds of the law. That LDS apostle that says, you are saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And Paul says, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This is a remarkable counter to what the LDS church teaches about salvation through the atonement of Christ. I hope you'll consider the words as we move on. Hey, hey let's go to Sam in Eagle Mountain, Utah. Sam, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, uh, Sean, I'm a first time caller. Yes. Um, and I, uh, I happen to be, I'm a, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm a practicing member. Uh-huh. Um, but that's not why I called, really, to get into Mormonism versus Christianity or anything like that. Um, I started watching your show just mostly out of curiosity. I kind of just was scanning through a channel one night, and I found some of it, and that was years ago, and then I found some clips on YouTube and uh, just started watching. And it seems to me, um, as you've talked with other Latter-day Saints and as you've talked to other uh, Christians, um, about certain topics and certain doctrines, that there's something missing. And I, and I think what's missing, and the, 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 the Christian community and, and the religious world kind of needs a, a revival of, is uh, tolerance, patience, uh, live and let live, um, being able to agree, disagree, or, or sorry, being able to disagree agreeably, um, you know, Jesus, as, uh, as I've heard you say several times, did teach love. And he taught, you know, those two great commandments that you, that you love to teach so much of, of loving yourself and loving your neighbor. And um, I don't think that, you know, he wants his, his children to, to be so gruff with, with uh, each other and to be so intolerant and angry. And some of the people that have called in, Latter-day Saints and Christians included, almost have anger or hatred for you. And, uh, and I, I just don't think that's right. And I think I wanted to talk to you about some things that you've done that I do admire. Um, even though there's several things that, that you teach that I don't agree with, um, there are a lot of things that you teach that I do agree with. Um, and I know, even if you're looking at this from a United States point of view, that the Constitution and the Revolutionary War, all of that was put together and fought so that different religions could come together and live in peace. And I think a lot of people are forgetting that. It becomes about me versus you, my doctrine versus your doctrine. You know, if you don't believe the way I do, I, I think I heard what some pastors say, they can't consider you a brother in Christ uh, because you believe differently than they do. And I, I don't think that that's the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to say, even though I'm a, a practicing member of the Latter-day Saint Church, um, I, I want you to know that I consider you a brother in Christ, and that I love you, even if there's things that we disagree about. And I, I, I admire what you do because I think anytime you go into any situation where you move into an area where that area is predominantly one faith or one belief system, and you try to say that, um, you know, there's things that are contrary to that belief system or to go away from that belief system, um, I think that takes courage, even if some people feel that it's misplaced or it's not true or it's not right. It takes courage to stand up and be a minority and, and in a face of people who are predominantly one way say, hey, wait a minute, I, I don't believe that way or I'm not that way. So I wanted to say, even though there's things I don't agree with you on, that I, I still think that what you do takes courage. And I believe in my heart that you do love Jesus Christ. And I believe in my heart that you're as committed to your faith and your religion 
and your interpretation of the Bible as I am to mine. And I have to admire that, that, that you do love Christ and that you are seeking according to your understanding and your spiritual experiences and your life to, to do what you feel is right and to honor Him. And that part of what you do, I just wanted to let you know uh, that, I, that I do honor. And um, I, I just hope as people call in and talk to you and as they listen to your show, I hope there can be more tolerance, more patience, more Christ-like love, more live and let live, and kind of let this contention go. Because uh, as, as I understand it, that's, that's not really uh, what Jesus taught. So uh, that's, that's really what I, what I wanted to say. Hey, Sam, I really appreciate your uh, comments and your insight. I want to ask you something. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you, and, and that's why I've, uh, I have tried to turn in my flesh from the way I formerly approached the subject of Mormonism and Christianity. Um, and you speak of tolerance, and I understand, but here's the, here's the thing I want to ask you. Uh, what you're saying, I absolutely agree with. But when you have, and I think that your message, what you're saying, is in harmony with much of what Joseph Smith originally said. But when you look at the Sacred Grove story and the narrative that I believe has been reconstructed that says, God tells Joseph Smith that all the Christian churches' sects are an abomination to him. And then you have missionaries who will go door to door to houses and they will tell people the same thing. And then you have a temple ceremony that I went through and most, uh, most people my age and older went through where Satan actually employs a uh, Protestant preacher and then you have, uh, and final thing, you have many quotes from everybody from some of your greatest towering intellects of the former years of Mormonism, ending even around with McConkie and even later, who have lambasted the Christian church and the Christian faith, false priesthoods, in the control of Satan. I just read one that says the Christian teaching of uh, salvation by faith is a creator of evil. So what I see, and you tell me how I might be wrong, Sam, is that where you as an individual member might understand and, and ex explain the importance of tolerance, that from the backdrop of your faith, I see a tremendous amount of intolerance. And I see it also well, from the Christian community. Yeah, um, let me just answer that briefly. I, I just think, I think so much relies upon perspective and, and how we think and feel about any given situation. I think we all see things from a different perspective. As a Latter-day Saint, and knowing some of these things, because you're right, some of the quotes that you read are true and have been said. Um, some of the things that you're talking about are true, and I, I don't deny that. Um, but what, what I'm saying is, for, for me, it's not a, it's not a question of, of what was actually meant when they said that. I don't think it was that we condemn everybody who's not a Latter-day Saint, or that everybody who's not a Latter-day Saint goes to hell, so to speak. I think, I think what they were trying to say most of all, or what God and Christ were, were trying to communicate to the Prophet Joseph Smith, was that, um, you know, and, and I understand that you don't, don't agree with this, but just that there were certain things that to, needed to be set right, and that there had to be one truth. If, if there was one God, if there was one truth, if there was, if there was one heaven and one teaching of Christ, then there had to be, you know, things that were kind of set and correct. But it, as you pointed out before, and I'll, and I'll point you this out, sometimes religious doctrines contradict one another. 
Well, we have in our 11th article of faith, which is at the heart of what we believe, let them worship what, where, and how they may. And yeah. so it's interesting that in, in one point they're saying, well, our church is the only true church, and the other things are abominations and stuff, but then they have this 11th article of faith that's saying, but let them worship how, where, and what they may. But and if you read some of the prophecies about what we believe is going to happen in the winding up scenes of the earth in the millennium and all of that, we believe that during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, there's going to be many religious faiths on the earth, even some that aren't Christian, who are just good, honorable people, who did their best to be honest and kind and trustworthy, and they're not condemned. They're there in the millennium with us. They're, they're, they're still able to believe what they believe, to hold to their faith in religion, and still be in when the, the world is a terrestrial world during the millennium and have Christ on the earth with them. Right. And so, and so, and so I think that this, but, I think it's oh. about freedom and Christ. Even if, even if Christ or God give us a commandment, I think the main thing is they don't force us to live it. I know that. Say, hey, I, I know that. You know? I, I know that. Yeah. But, but so, so, I, I have to ask you, after all, after all of this being said between us in a very tolerant and civil way, I want to know, as an active Latter-day Saint, not what you believe, Sam. I want to know what the church teaches about a person who rejects, adamantly and forever rejects, the LDS teachings of the gospel uh, from authority to baptize all the way to temple endowment. What does the LDS church say will happen to that soul? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Thank you. I, I have heard I've heard you talk about before the, the Latter day Saints who struggle to get to church in their GI clothes in the trailers and I'm just a step above that. We're we're pretty much impoverished. We don't live in a trailer. I mean we have a small home and stuff. As far as doctrine goes and as far as religious scholarship goes, I, I can say you have me beat even in my own religion. I believe that you've probably studied the doctrinal aspects of my own religion more than I have, simply because I'm not very learned, I don't have a lot of time. Uh, so the things that I do study are more just to, to nourish my, my heart and my faith and bring me closer to God and to Christ. I can't tell you that I have researched everything that our church has ever said about that. I can tell you what I feel yeah, as I, I pray about it I know, and think and I about can, it, and that's just that. I can, tell by um, what, I can tell by the tone of your voice what you feel, Sam. I understand that that you have a very giving, loving, kind heart toward that. But here's the reason I bring that up, my friend. You've called and we're talking about religious tolerance. And you're talking yeah. about how the need to have that. But in reality, oh, the reason I asked you that question, and, and, and you say that I'm probably more studied in the faith than you are, was, I was LDS a long time. And the, the reality is everybody who rejects the Mormon way, they may inherit a kingdom, but they will not live with God. They will not. And that is the most intolerant approach that I think is really perpetrated even among maybe even Calvinists. I mean, it's pretty hardcore, my brother. And so while I agree with you as a human being and you and I can get along and everything else, when we're talking about doctrine, and let me tell you something, when it comes to Christian doctrines that are off too, I'll fight them as well, I, what I think is off. But my brother, you are representing how you feel, but the faith you belong to teaches one of the most intolerant messages when it comes to people who love Jesus. And I have to lay that out at you because I wouldn't be doing us any favors to just sit and agree with you because we love each other. Does that make sense? I do, and because I believe, <laughs> because I believe what we've been talking about, 
uh, on this point, and, and maybe I can't lay it out as eloquently as you do sometimes, but on this point, I'm just going to have to say um, that I kind of agree to disagree. <laughs> All right, my friend. Hey, we are out of time, Sam, but thank you so much for watching. It was great talking with you, and thank you for your demeanor. I really appreciate it. All right, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. I'm sorry to uh, Daniel and Flagstaff and Matt in New York. We're out of time. If you call next week, we'll have Wendy. Uh, make sure you get to the top of the list. And uh, we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light. Till monkeys start to